With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lord, Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Thank you, Lord, for this new day and for this day of rest and worship. Thank you, Father, for the free conference call, for that possibility of replacing TalkShoe. Thank you, Father, that we have used TalkShoe for years. It's been reliable most of the time. And we thank you for that, Lord. But we do all also, at the same time, always want to look for possibilities of growth to reach more people with more options, with better options. So we pray that your will, whatever it may be, would prevail in this situation with the free conference call compared to talk shoot. Father, we lift up to you all of our brothers and sisters around the world, those that are struggling financially, those that are struggling with their health, whether it be physical or spiritual or emotional or mental. We pray for them, lift them up to you for encouragement, for strength, and for help. We lift up to you, Brother Meekness, that was having the severe headaches. I don't know if he is still having those or not. But at least now, he's been able to get some vitamins, hopefully also some spices and food. So we thank you, Father, for the provision. And we pray for Brother Meekness that he be healed of whatever was causing the headaches. We pray for your favor upon him and mercy and healing. We pray for healing upon Sister Kiki, upon Brother AJ, and upon Brittany as well. We pray, Lord, for more brothers and sisters to be brought our way, that we may love upon them, support them, encourage them, help them, and point them to the truth in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for your help in this sermon that we would understand better than what we did before, that we would grow in understanding. We pray that every member of this congregation would grow in understanding and also in maturity and in discernment and in wisdom. It was preached last week about understanding and wisdom and how the world lacks wisdom about quarantines, diseases, your law concerning quarantines, and how the ministers are called to uh, give medical help to the congregation and to the world. But we pray, Lord, that your people would grow in understanding and in wisdom. We pray for protection from the coronaviruses, we pray for protection from all the forces that are working upon death upon the world. We pray, Lord, for the help with this broadcast, with the sermon, with the delivery of the sermon. We pray that you would open our ears, our spiritual ears, to receive this word that you have for us today. 
We pray that your spirit and your will to prevail in this sermon and in all of these worship services today and every week. We pray for your spirit and your will to prevail in our hearts, in our minds, in our soul, and in our flesh, and in our lives, and in our individual ministries. We pray your spirit and will prevail, Father. In Jesus' holy name, so be it. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise Jesus. Well, I think I got all the buttons pushed right this this time. Praise the Lord. There is a God in heaven. Praise the Lord. Let's go to Leviticus, Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, starting on verse 6, so this is page 151 in the book of law, page 151, Leviticus 23, verse 6. And the title of the sermon today is Count to Pentecost of the Seventh Seal. We know that the scriptures tell us that we should count the days to Pentecost. Today, there are 14 to 15 days according to what time zone you're in. Basically, about 15 days left to Pentecost. So it's almost here, just two weeks away. We look forward to that. But we're also going to talk about not only counting to the Pentecost of this year and of each year, but also to the sixth seal. Now, we've talked about this before, especially when this was first revealed. And um, But it's always good to have a refresher especially when it comes up close to these holy days so that we can really fully understand and comprehend the full meaning, the full symbolism, the instructions, the commandments, what we need to have in our mind and in our soul during these days, holy days. Since we got two weeks left to Pentecost, it's important to understand and remember that we should be counting the days. We should be counting the days. Now, in verse 6, it says, On the 15th day of this month, which actually was last month, the first month of the year, is the Fiesta of Unleavened Bread. That comes right after Passover. And it is to Jesus, not to Moses, but to Jesus. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. And that's seven periods of 24 hours, starting at sunset on Passover evening. That does not mean that the day begins at sunset, but just that the observance of your fasting from levity begins at sunset, because that is how God would rather have a fast 
to, to do is to start at sunset. Verse 7, and the first day shall be a holy, assembled assembly, meaning a commanded gathering, a commanded worship service. So a lot of people say you don't have to go to church to live right. You don't have to go to church to make it to heaven. All of that. But that's not true. The Bible commands gathering together, assembly, on the seventh day as well as his commanded holy days. The first day of unleavened bread is such a day that we are commanded to gather together. And you should do no laborious work, meaning two things, that you should not work as a laborer for hire for money, and that you should not do work that is laborious, that is difficult, that is hard. And you might think it's easy, but nevertheless, that would include mowing the yard, weed eating, and other things like that. We have to be careful not to do too much on the holy days. Verse 8, And you shall offer whole burnt offerings to Jesus seven days. And the seventh day of that fiesta shall be a holy summer and simile to you. Should no do no labor's work. So we also see on the last day of unleavened bread, another commanded gathering as well as a day of rest. Now, of course, the whole burnt offering is replaced by our prayers and our daily repentance, our daily living for God. The Bible does speak about our prayers as being burnt offerings, fire and smoke in symbolism, rising up to heaven to the altar of God. So our prayers replace the physical animal sacrifices. But then, after the days of unleavened bread, our next holy day would be Pentecost. Verse 9 starts talking about Pentecost and counting up to Pentecost. So Jesus spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Jezreel, and you shall say to them, When you shall enter into the land which I give you, and reap the harvest of it, meaning, wherever you go upon the earth, even outside of Israel. Amen. Wherever you go upon the earth, then shall you bring a sheaf, the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Meaning that you should give a tithe of all of your increase. That would be your food, your herbs, anything you're growing, cow milk, anything that is increased in your belongings, you should give a tithe to God. Now, in this particular tithe, it was part of uh, taking the green, a uh, bundle, I believe it would be like a bundle of green, and bring that to the priests for part of the sacrifice, for part of the ritual to God. Verse 11, and he shall lift up that sheaf, that bundle of grain, up to the sky, up to Jesus, to be accepted for you on the first day of the first, uh, on the next day of the first day harvest to the priest. Now, of course, we don't have to do those things anymore. 
because those are physical rituals that were all replaced through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And verse 12, And you shall offer on the day on which you bring the sheep a lamb without blemish of a year old for a whole burnt offering to Jesus. Verse 13, And it's meat offering, two-tenth portions of fine flour mingled with oil. It is a sacrifice to Jesus, a smell, a sweet aroma to Jesus, and his drink offering, the fourth part of a hen of wine. So there was supposed to be flour, oil, and wine, and a lamb, and the bread, the bread grain. Verse 14, you should not eat bread or the new parched grain until the same day until you offer the sacrifices to your theos. There's a long-term statue throughout your generations and all your dwellings. We don't have to understand any of that because all of that is replaced through the body of Jesus Christ through the crucifixion, body and blood, Passover blood of Jesus. Verse 15, and you shall number, but this we do keep, and I will tell you why. And you shall number to yourselves from the day after the rest day, the day after the Sabbath that occurs during the days of unleavened bread, from the day on which you shall offer the sheaf of the heath offering seven full weeks. Seven weeks. So you take, you look at the calendar, you see, you determine when Passover is and when the seven days of unleavened bread is. You find the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath, within those seven days of unleavened bread. Then you count seven weeks, 49 days, and then the day after that, the 50th day, would always fall on Sunday. This is why Pentecost is always, always on Sunday. And that has nothing to do with sun worship. But rather, rather, it is the counting of seven full weeks. And it says the day after that is when you do Pentecost. So that would always be on Sunday. It is the only holy day of God. The only holy day of God that is always on Sunday. It is also the only holy day of God that you do not determine the date of Pentecost by saying it is a certain day of the month. Whereas Passover is the 14th of the first month. The first day of unleavened bread is the 15th day of the first month. The fiesta of trumpets is the first day of the seventh month. So on and so on. You can't say that with Pentecost. It's different. It's unique. You have to count the days or the weeks after the Sabbath that occurs during the days of unleavened bread. So that's different. It's unique. So it could fall on a different date of the year, each year, even within God's calendar. Now, why do I say we have to continue to count the days or weeks, however you want to do it, if I'm saying, well, you don't have to do any of this other, all the way from verse 10 down, you don't have to do the lamb, you don't have to do the burnt offering, the wine, uh, all any of this stuff right here. But you got to do 
the counting. Why do I say that? Well, it's because that's the only way you can determine when Pentecost is. Amen. If you want to know when to keep Pentecost, you've got to count. That's why. So it's very easy, very basic. you got to count in order to figure out when to keep Pentecost. Amen. And verse 16, until the next day after the last week, after the last seventh day of the seventh weeks, you should count 50 days. So right there, it tells you it's going to fall on Sunday because it's the day after those seven weeks. And so you get a total of 50. The word Pentecost means 50. That's what Pentecost means. It is the Greek word for 50. And so that makes it different and unique from all the other holy days of how to determine when the date is. Now there's another reason also of why we should, why we would count the days. And that is because we should also count the days to the sixth seal. Now, if anyone has not yet read the article of isawthelightministries.com slash dates dot html, and it is the five holy days in the end time prophetic timeline. If you have not read that, I encourage you to do so because it is mind-blowing. It is a major revelation. Major revelation. It's always been in the Bible. It's clear in the Bible. But it takes studying the Bible to find it. Because it doesn't say it straight out. you got to do it this way. And all the holy days are going to be in this perfect alignment with the end time events. It doesn't say it straight out. But it does say it by saying that the holy days are foreshadowings of things to come which means they are prophecies of things to come, and uh, that we should count the days and so forth. And God would not have holy days if they had no meaning to them. Amen. And a lot of people think they have meaning only about the past, but they always forget that verse that they are foreshadowings of the future. Amen. Now, many websites, books, and churches teach that the Pentecost represents the first resurrection. However, I have come to understand it really does not represent the first resurrection. They say it represents the first resurrection because the priest would wave the bundle of grain up into the sky, which looks like a symbolism for a resurrection people going up into the sky. I can see how they get that. But when we look at the five holy days in the end time prophetic timeline, we realize that the fulfillment of Passover in the end time would actually be the opening of the sixth seal. 
which is not when the saints rise for the first resurrection. It's still another year after that before we get to the first resurrection. So it is not really a foreshadowing of the first resurrection. So we have to get that old traditional thinking out of our minds. However, we could say that it's pointing in that direction. You know, it's pointing toward the end times when we are getting closer and closer to that resurrection. But it's not really foreshadowing the actual resurrection, but rather it's foreshadowing and foretelling the swooping of the sixth seal. Now, I don't see anything in here in these verses we just read that describes anything related to the sixth seal. I can't find no symbolism in there. But we have to read the whole Bible. Amen? And so let's go to Acts. And that's where we really learn about the connection between Pentecost and the sixth seal. We find that connection in the book of Acts. So Acts in the New Testament. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. 128. Page 128. Yeah. 128. Thank you, bro Robert. My bro. Amen. Page 128, Acts 1, verse 1. We're going to go maybe verse 1 down to verse 5. Acts 1, verse 1. The first narrative I wrote... Theophilippus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So Luke, Dr. Luke, who was a Gentile from Syria, was writing to this man named Theophilus. And he's saying, I wrote previously the book of Luke uh, about everything that Jesus did in the beginning the doing and the teachings of Jesus until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And after he had, by the Holy Ghost, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. That's important. Underline 40 days appearing to them for 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of Theos. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, he walked among the disciples and among other people. And I believe there's a verse that says he was witnessed by, I think it says 500 or maybe 400 people witnessed seeing Jesus during those 40 days. That's a lot of people. It's important to understand he walked on earth 40 days before he went back to heaven. Because remember, he died on the first day of unleavened bread. Which would have been, I think, Wednesday or Thursday. 
forget for sure which one right now. So then, if you were to count Pentecost, which is what Acts 2 is about, and we're going to read that here in a minute, then you would get, of course, there's 50 days counting from after the Sabbath during that week. Now, he rose on the Sabbath, on Saturday night, very late at night, at 3 o'clock in the morning, just a couple of hours before sunrise of the first day. So you would start counting Pentecost just a couple of hours after Jesus rose from the dead. And during the first 40 days out of that 50, he walked on earth, allowing people to see him and touch him to some, some degree. But not everyone, only, the only one that touched him that was allowed to touch him was only Thomas. But everybody else was told, do not touch me because I've not yet risen to heaven. So he was not in heaven during the days of his death, contrary to traditional Babylonian false doctrines. Amen. So then after he did go back to heaven, you would have 10 days left to Pentecost. Amen. After he rose back to heaven, you had 10 days left until Pentecost. Now it says here in verse 4, uh, Gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which you heard from me, quote, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. Now the twelve disciples, or the eleven, had been baptized with the Holy Ghost already. Most people do not know that. Most people do not understand that. But there is a verse, uh, I forget it might be the book of John, I'm not for sure, but there is a verse that says that he breathed upon them and they received the Holy Ghost. So, the twelve disciples already had the ghost. But here where, where he says in this verse, you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. He's speaking about a larger crowd. Okay, he's not speaking, even though he's speaking to them, we have to be understanding that a person can speak words without spelling it out. That's a huge problem with people. Huge problem. It frustrates me so bad. Everybody wants to go A, B, C. That it says exactly this and it can't mean nothing but this. Sometimes that's true, but other times it's not true. When he says, let me read it again. You will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. You can and does refer to not only to the twelve, but your people, your group, your disciples, your followers, those that are with you, those that are in your group. So that word you, even in modern usage, 
in English can refer to not only you yourself, but your household, the people that are with you, the people that represent you, the people that follow you. Okay? So we have to understand that he's really saying, because they already had the Holy Ghost, we have to consider that he's really talking about the people that will be with them on Pentecost. Many more people than just the twelve. And if we were to keep reading this chapter, he ascended up to heaven in front of them. Now, after he had ascended up to heaven, chapter 2 comes. Now, remember in chapter 1, he says, Do not leave Jerusalem until you are baptized. And there was only 10 days left for the fulfillment of that. Acts 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, I was looking at the Greek words last night for had come in this particular verse. And it is a surprising and important meaning to it. And it's hard to translate. And I don't think I'm going to actually change it, but rather just add some words in parentheses. So after the word come, I'm going to add parentheses the count of 50 days had been accomplished. After the count of 50 days had been accomplished. Had come. Because the Greek words for had come in this particular verse means when something has been completed or accomplished. So we could say when the countdown of Pentecost had been completed. But there's not a Greek word for countdown in this verse. But it is what it's hinting to. It's hinting toward a countdown because it means when something has been accomplished, done. Uh, and we have to be careful about translating it uh, beyond um, the minimum amount of translation. It's important that when we translate scriptures that we barely translate, that we try to keep it as minimum changes as possible, not adding too many words and being extremely careful which words we choose. If we put the word fulfilled or accomplished, people's going to twist that. And say, Pentecost is fulfilled. We don't have to keep it anymore. Pentecost is accomplished. Pentecost is completed. We don't have to keep it no more. You see what I'm saying? If we use words like that, people will twist the words. So it's important to keep the translation to a minimum amount and then just explain what it means. So when the day of Pentecost had come, Meaning that the count of 50 days had been done, finished, they were all together, meaning they were fulfilling the law of what the law says, that we should come together, a commanded assembly. Now this was, again, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And he had walked on earth 40 days out of those 50 now, out of 40 days, Jesus had more than enough time 
to say, you don't have to keep the holy days no more. In fact, don't wait at Jerusalem for the Feast of, of, of uh, Pentecost because it's useless. It's already been done. It's already been fulfilled. Or just keep it one last time. But he didn't say any of that. Amen. He didn't say any of that in those 40 days because something like that would have been so significant, extremely significant, that the apostles would have been writing it Matthew would have wrote it, Mark, Luke, John, they would have all wrote down in their gospel accounts, Jesus said, we no longer have to keep the holy days, not even the seventh day, not even the Ten Commandments, it's all done and we're over with, and we can even keep pagan days now, we can even worship false gods now, we can have many gods now. They would have wrote that if Jesus had taught that. Amen? Jesus didn't teach nothing like that. But rather, Jesus said, wait here. He knew that they're going to be counting the days to Pentecost. Did he not? He knew they would be counting the days to Pentecost. And he did, so, he did not say, don't count. They counted. They counted. And when they counted, they were together, as the scriptures command, all in one place on that holy day. Amen. In verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Right there, a lot of people say, well, that proves because they were in a house that we can only do worship services only in somebody's home. We should not go to an actual church building. They want to twist everything. The fact is that the word house can be mistranslated or translated in different ways, many, many, many different ways. It's really just a place. A place. It's not, that Greek word is not specific to any particular type of structure. It could have been a barn. It could have been a basement. It could have been a temple. It could have been a church building. It could have been anything. That Greek word is so general that there's no way we could figure out what type of structure it was. So people need to stop uh, assuming things. And plus, we got to also understand that due to Roman persecution, it may have been some kind of a, a member's house, whatever, that's possible, due to persecution that they're trying to hide out and hide where they're having worship services. But that would be the reasoning. Their reasoning for meeting at a house, if it was a house, which I actually really doubt it, but if it had been a house, the reasoning would have been hiding from the Roman authorities. Not because they didn't believe in church buildings. They did believe in church buildings, absolutely. They believed in synagogues, which were church buildings. And this could have been a synagogue. Again, that word house is so general that it can mean any kind of structure. But they were there, 
and the wind came. Verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. So this is the tongue of God, the voice of God, the tonsils of God. This is, he is the lake of fire, and he is manifesting himself as these tongues of fire, resting on each one of them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. At that time, there was staying in Jerusalem devout male Jews from every nation under heaven because it was the annual pilgrimage of Pentecost. So you had the Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem because they knew to count the 50 days and they also knew it was commanded to not just gather anywheres, but to gather where God had put his name. Amen. And that was Jerusalem for some people, for a lot of people. But there was other places as well, not just Jerusalem, where God had certain prophets and apostles stationed where people could go there as well. But Jerusalem was the main place for people to go. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the sound of speaking in tongues in the rushing wind, the crowd came together and were bewildered, confused, because each one of them were hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each one of us, hear in our own language to which we were born? The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamptites and the residents of Macedonia, Judea, Captonia, Paulpus, Asia, Perga, Pamelia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Sacrene, and visitors from Rome both Jews and new Gentile converts. Please underline Gentile converts. So it wasn't only Jews that were keeping the holy days, but rather Gentiles who was also had converted to accepting Jesus Christ and not only accepting Jesus, but also his ways his teachings, his commandments, the way of life that he commanded, including baptism and foot washing. They would not be allowed to be there if they had not yet been baptized in water. And this is absolutely true, that especially in that day and time, the converts would be people, these Gentiles, had been baptized in water in order to be there for this holy day. Now, today, we don't require that people be baptized before attending worship services with us because we are more into the mode of evangelism, witnessing, testifying, helping the lost get saved. The only time when the Bible instructs us to forbid outsiders who have not been baptized yet, is only for Passover communion. The Bible never actually forbids unbaptized people 
from keeping Pentecost or any other holy day other than just the communion on Passover evening. But back then, they would have definitely forbid anybody just out of custom, out of tradition, out of extra caution due to persecution, other reasons. They would not have been allowed among their midst without being baptized because they was much more strict at that time. But there was Gentiles. And verse 11 says, uh, Cretans and Arabs. Now that's Gentiles. They mean the Arabs or Gentiles. And yet they were there as converts, as baptized members of the New Covenant Church, accepting Jesus as God, worshiping Jesus, and uh, believing the teachings of the apostles. And we hear them in our own languages you can even underline Cretans and Arabs to help get the point of Gentiles. And we hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty works of Theos. And they were all continued in amazement and great prolixity, meaning confusion, saying to one another, what does this mean? <clears throat> but others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem also, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day is too early to get drunk. <laughs> that is why they're not drunk. It's just simply too early. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Quote, he started quoting the book of Joel, which says in verse 17, it shall be in the last days. Peter thought it was the last days. Amen. Peter thought that this was the sixth seal being opened in front of his eyes. He thought Jesus was coming back very soon. It shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my ghosts on much flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my ghosts, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord <clears throat> shall come. Meaning these things are going to happen before Jesus comes for his church. Amen. This is clear. So this is another verse that proves the pre-trib rapture theory as a lie of the devil. Amen. It proves the pre-trib rapture as a lie of the devil. And where he's quoting from in Joel proves it as well. And Matthew 24 proves it. And Luke 21 and Mark 13 and the entire book of Revelation. The Bible is full and overflowing with proof against the pre-trib rapture fairy tale. Amen. 
in verse 21, it shall be that each or all or many who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So in connection with these heavenly signs, the signs in the sky about the sun and the moon, in connection with that, there will be what we call today, which the Bible never calls it, but traditionally we call that a revival, where many people are getting saved. Many, many, many people are getting saved in that day and time. And that's in connection with that sixth seal. Now, we don't see the words sixth seal here. But if we compare Scripture with Scripture, in Revelation, it is the sixth seal. That's very clear. Joel, chapter 2, chapter 3, and the book of Revelation, compared with this. All verses compared, it is talking about the sixth seal. No doubt at all. Now, Paul, I mean Peter... Peter thought it was the opening of the sixth seal, but he did not see the signs that should have accomplished came along with the sixth seal. He did not see the sun and the moon darken on that particular day. But the sun did darken on the day Jesus died. So maybe he had that in mind. That had only been 50 days or 53 days ago that Jesus had died. So maybe that was in his mind. But the moon didn't. And if you read about the sixth seal, you would also see meteorites and stars falling from heaven and uh, vapors of smoke. So, I mean, there was a lot more to it than what happened on the day Jesus died. So Peter was mistaken then, right? Amen. Peter was mistaken. But he was a man of God with many sins and with many flaws and problems. He was not always correct, but... The church was to, to follow him and all the disciples. They were to respect him, honor him, and obey him as being one of God's chosen apostles. Amen. Regardless of his sins, regardless of his flaws, and regardless of his mistakes about prophecy and dates of prophecy. Amen. Now, also consider Matthew wrote Scripture. Mark wrote Scripture. Luke wrote Scripture. Peter wrote Scripture. Paul wrote Scripture. James wrote Scripture. And maybe even somebody else in Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. So maybe it was Paul. Maybe it was James. Maybe it was somebody else. And so we have multiple people writing Scripture. Not just one or two people, but actually uh, quite a few people, men, writing Scripture. And what was it? You know, I don't see nothing in the Bible where Jesus said directly to Matthew, 
or Mark or Luke or even Paul write this down like he did to Moses. He did to Moses say, write this down. But I don't see those words directly to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Paul, or Peter, or James. Maybe he did. But I don't see it in Scripture where Jesus or God or a voice from heaven said, write this down. But they did write because they felt led by the Holy Ghost to write to help people come to Jesus. Amen. And Scripture is nothing more than a man writing down what he is led by the Holy Ghost, as the Bible says, to write down. It doesn't even have to be, thus say of the Lord, of a big manifestation from God with lightning and thunder and earthquake, but just a leading of the Holy Ghost in that man's heart and mind, writing words that are inspired in his heart and his mind. Amen. And if many men did it in that damn time, and all the way back from Job, and then Moses, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I, I guarantee you Noah did as well, we just don't have it, and many other men throughout time, including the Maccabees, even between the time of Old Testament and New Testament, then why would it be any different today? Why would it be any, any, any different today? God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. He does not change. He has always used men in writing down what they were led through the Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost to write down. Amen. Now, when the 50 days were finished until Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came in a greater measure upon thousands of people. If you look at, I think it maybe, where is it, the last verse or so, Over here in verse 41, Acts 2:41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and at that day there were added about 3,000 souls. A great multitude. That is a great multitude. Amen? 3,000 people were baptized uh, in water and of the Holy Ghost on that day of Pentecost. So with Pentecost comes a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now the reason Peter thought, even though he didn't see the heavenly signs on that day, the reason he thought it was the opening of the sixth seal and the fulfillment of the book of Joel is because he knew that there would be an increase of salvation, a greater number of people saved, and an outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon the people. Because Joel talked about that, about the pouring out of the Holy Ghost, and people dreaming and prophesying and stuff like that. Basically, people coming into a greater measure of His Spirit. That's why he thought it was a fulfillment of 
uh, Joel and the sixth seal. Now let's go over to the book of Revelation. Revelation 6. I'm sorry that I forgot to post these notes on MeWe before the worship services. But of course I'll get them posted later on today after services. In Revelation 6, let's start in verse 8. Revelation 6, 8 is where we are in the Bible right now. That's where we are in the prophetic timeline. Revelation 6, verse 8, that's page 264. And let's actually go to verse 7. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, broke the fourth seal, I heard this, the voice of the fourth living creature, a type of angel, saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale green horse. Green is the color of Islam. And he who said on it had the name Pestilence, or Death. You can translate it either way. But it's really Pestilence. And the grave was following him, meaning there would be death, following the pestilence. So that confirms really it's pestilence. But I have to keep both words there just to let people know it can be translated both ways. Now, there is some confusion about, about why I continue to say that the green horse is Islam. You have to consider the entire context of this entire chapter. If you look at the white horse, it is a political and religious system of false doctrine, Babylonian doctrines, false peace, false ministers, wolves in sheep clothing, Nobel Peace Prize winners, the Olympics, people who proclaim peace but have a heart of war. Then the, the second horse is red. That's communism. That's Russia, that's China, that's the Democrats, that's socialism. So it's a political system, even a religious system. Communism is a religious system, even though they claim to be atheists. But their religion is um, self-worship of the dictators. Uh, they did worship themselves. They do worship themselves. And they, many of those are probably fallen angels that worship themselves and so forth. But communism is a religion. It really is, as well as a government, a political system. So is Islam is a political system as well as a religious system. It's more political, believe it or not. It is a government. It is a kingdom. Islam is a kingdom government of Satan. Communism is a religious political church of Satan. Nazism, the third horse, the black horse. Nazism is a religious belief. Hitler was extremely religious, absolutely extremely religious fanatic. 
and he was tied in very closely with the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. Despite many, many different people's false beliefs, opinions, contrary different opposing sides, the fact is the historical record shows that he had all of his soldiers to sign statements of a pledge of a lifetime pledge of allegiance to the Catholic Church. So regardless of what you might read some words, the fact is proven that he was a devout Catholic. He even said that he got the Nazi swastika from the Catholic Church. That is where he found it at, on the wall of a Roman Catholic Church, and said, I like that symbol, I'm going to use it. Now we know it's also used in Hinduism and Buddhism and stuff like that. But nevertheless, he found it in the Roman Catholic Church, which says a lot about the Catholic Church. Now, people say that the Nazi swat sticker is a symbol of peace. But again, what is the white horse? The white horse is proclaiming peace. Even Hitler made the statement that he was a man of peace. So did Lenin. So does Obama. But they have a heart of war. So just because people say that the Nazi swastika is a sign of peace doesn't mean that it actually is. All of these symbols, all of these colors, all of these political religious groups are tied in together. They are not completely separate. They are components of the same kingdom of Satan. But God releases these upon the earth because God uses Satan, praise the Lord. He uses the enemy. He uses everything on the earth and throughout the universe in his hand. As that old song says, he has the whole world in his hands. He really does have the whole world in his hands. And everybody is part of his plan, even these evil forces. So when we get down to the green horse, if all the previous horses were political, religious, brainwashing systems, then so would the green horse also be a political, religious, dictatorship system upon the earth, just like all the others. Okay? They're all tied in together. We also have to look at uh, the symbols for 666, how the first symbol is the Nazi swastika. The second symbol is the name of Allah, which refers to Islam. And then the third symbol is the communist sickle and hammer symbol for communism. So you have there the red horse of communism with the red communist sickle flag and the black Nazi swastika of the black horse. So it's only common sense that Islam would also be one of the horses as well. But this green horse of Islam, green being the sacred color of Islam, is tied directly with disease and pestilence. And history shows that wherever Islam has conquered, disease 
followed every, every, every time. So they are directly connected. Amen. We also see with the mark of the beast that eventually God will pour upon those with the mark of the beast sores and afflictions upon their flesh. So there is disease that is connected with embracing Islam. Look at Iran, how it is overflowing with the SARS-2 coronavirus right now. We cannot get realistic numbers from that dictatorship about how bad it is. But if you look at where the worst cases are, it is China, which is the red horse, and Iran, which is the green horse. And even in Russia, it is very bad, much more than what they are saying, which is also part of the red horse. So then, when we see the green horse come upon the earth, we cannot believe that it was just got started with the coronavirus. Because look at SARS-1 before this, and look at e Ebola before this, and look at the swine flu, and other types of diseases that have been increasing upon the earth for the last several years. As well as an increase in the regular flu. Also, the timeline between each horse, between each seal being broken and revealed upon the earth, you have to have a space of time. It does not make sense for there to be no space or only one year or even just only two years or three years between the fourth seal and the fifth seal. The fifth seal is the next seal to be woken. That's the great tribulation, starting with the abomination of desolation in heaven, the strong delusion. So if we have the opening of the fifth seal, say next year or the next or the next or the next, then you would only have one year, two years, three, four years, five years between the opening of the fourth and the fifth. And that doesn't make any sense at all because the first one was 1901 or even late 1800s up to 1901. The second one was 1917, the red horse of communism, the Soviet revolution. So that was 16 years or more between the first and the second one. And then the third horse of black of the Nazism, the 1930s and 40s, so again, you had around 15 or so. I'm not going to count exact. We don't have to know the exact number. But over 10 years, around 15. And then the fourth seal, I believe, was back in the 60s when the Ba'ath Party took over Syria. And then the uh, Assad's family was part of that. And then eventually Assad's dad became the president, and then Assad himself. And then also the 1979 
Iranian Revolution, so it was in steps. But I believe actually it started really being manifested in the 60s, which makes plenty of sense when we look at the corruption of society all across the world in the 60s, with the sexual revolution in America, with uh, prayer being taken out of school in the 60s, uh, with much more communism coming upon the United States in the 60s, uh, uh, women, voting rights, and all this, all the, the nonsense, all of the junk in the United States was greatly increased in the 60s, and the Ba'ath Party coming to power in Syria, which would have never... Uh, which was a very important first step for the Assad family to eventually come in power. So then you would have a space of uh, 20 some or 30 some years between the third and the fourth horse. So it doesn't make any sense to have a space of only one, two, or three, or four years between the fourth and the fifth seal. Amen. So it can't be talking about just this particular virus that was just now released upon the earth. It has to be more than that. And it's really several diseases, including it, and a religious political system, being Islam. If red is communism, and white is the color of, of righteousness and peace, and the uh, surrender flag is white, and the black for Nazism, then it would only make sense for the green to be Islam. So it's common sense if you really think it out. Now let's go over to page 265, and we find the second part of verse 8. And I've numbered it 8b, and it might help you to take a highlighter or ink pen or something to help you find verse 8b because it's like squeezed in between a lot of notes here so to help it to stand out so you never overlook that part of the verse it would be good to circle it or do a highlighter or something or a little mark to help you find it and remember to never overlook the second half of verse 8 so 8b says authority was given to them to all four horses over a fourth of the earth, meaning a 25% of the population of the earth, each one, a 25% of the population to kill with a sword, that would be war, with famine, which is a lack of food, which would be starvation, and with pestilences, plagues, and pandemic, and also by the uh, wild or dangerous wild, evil, dangerous beasts or animals of the earth. So right now, what we see in connection with this pandemic is goats and uh, all kinds of different, like wild pigs and uh, different animals, alligators, the, the, a hornet called the murder hornet, uh, all kinds of different animals and insects that are very quickly, and then the locust plague, all kinds of animal manifestations upon the earth roaming in the inner cities, 
where normally you would have a lot of people, but because the streets are empty in certain places, the animals come in and take over the streets looking for food. Uh, they no longer have the human food strat, uh, food remnants uh, so much in the dumpster and behind the kitchens and stuff like that. Not as much food available to the animals with people staying home more, not eating out as much. Restaurants closed, still closed in many nations. So the animals are having to come out more in the whooping looking for food. And that can be a danger. Uh, they can attack if somebody was out there. Uh, if a child was to come out, go out the door, not being watched. Uh, disease. We also saw rats uh, increasing in New York City and other cities. So we see a manifestation of animals being more visible. And some people even say that uh, that the virus was genetically engineered using uh, the rats or the mice or the, uh, uh, help me out, bats, with the bats. So it is possible that even though they engineered it in a lab, that they would have used a, a bat or a mouse or both in that engineering. So we're seeing the fulfillment of this absolutely. Amen. So that's where we are in the Bible right now. Revelation 6 verse 8. Then when we get to verse 9, the Lamb of God, Jesus, broke the fifth seal. And I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of Theos and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So the people, the saints, who had previously died, John seized them. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it was given to them, each one of them, a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be murdered, even as they had been, would be completed also. So these are saints that had already died. And we know that when saints are dead or when anyone is dead, they are simply asleep. Here, they are woken up by the whooping of the fifth seal. That tells us that the fifth seal is something huge. It is something so huge that it rattles the sleeping souls awake. It jerks them awake. That is possible. It's absolutely possible for a sleeping soul who cannot hear or see or feel anything. It is possible for a person to be waking up through a great commotion, something great, something huge happening upon the earth. And I'm absolutely confident that it is the blasphemy of Assad sitting momentarily on the throne of God in heaven that that is so outrageous, it is so blasphemous, 
that it wakes up the dead. And they ask God, how much longer will it be before you avenge us? You know what? They don't come awake and say, will you please forgive the people that killed us? Will you please have mercy upon the earth? Will you please have mercy and forgive everybody and not bring any judgment? But rather, they come awake and they first thing they say that we know of is, when are you going to take revenge for our deaths? Amen? Read the prayers of David, how he pleaded for the destruction of those people who had mocked him and hated him. Amen? So, we can take a lesson from these sleeping saints. Amen. And they're not told to not be revengeful. They're not told that. But rather, they are told to simply go back to sleep, to rest a little while longer, while there is a martyrdom of the people on the earth, the saints. So this tells you right here that nobody is just raptured out, but rather that the saints will be martyred. Some saints, many saints, will be martyred. Now right now it doesn't look like there's hardly any saints on the earth. But nevertheless, there will be many people martyred who are coming into the truth in this final year or two or three, however many years we got until the strong delusion, there will be more people to come into this fold, to come into this flock. There will be, absolutely. There's people, new people come into this, this ministry every year, without exception. Every year there are new people. Most of them fall away. But usually there may be one person that stays and stays committed and the congregation continues to grow across the world. And even those that do fall away, they have at least grown in the truth some. While they were here, they did grow in the truth even though they did not stay with us. And I believe it is those people more than anyone else that will be martyred. But that does not guarantee them a place in the kingdom just because you are martyred. If you think about it, there are many, many people upon this earth that hate Islam without being saved because they know Islam is evil and you don't have to be saved to know that Islam is evil. And there are many people upon this earth that will never, ever, ever submit to Islam no matter what. If you don't realize that, you need to take time to really think it out and explore the world and look on the Internet more at what the people are saying and doing. There are, say, for example, Pamela, uh, Gabriel, uh, Bridget Gabriel and Pamela... Gilbert, Gilbert, however you pronounce it, and Richard Spencer, and many others, they're not saved. Okay? 
but they still hate Islam with a passion and work as mighty warriors against Islam. And they will probably be martyred. But that doesn't guarantee them a place in heaven just because you stand against Islam. You still have to keep the commandments of God. They still have to repent of Judaism and the Roman Catholic Church and Babylonian doctrines and of their own personal sins. Okay? Martyrdom does not win you an instant ticket to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? And that includes His commandments. Amen? Nevertheless, what we see here is the opening of the fifth seal. Then we go down to verse 12. And I looked when he had opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the entire moon became like blood, red. And the stars of the sky, which is not literally stars, but meteorites, fell to the earth just like a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Now, it, it kind of makes you think Jesus is coming right here and right there, but he doesn't because this is only the sixth seal. But the way it's worded makes a lot of people think this is when Jesus comes. There's a lot of people, tons of people saying that Jesus comes at the sixth seal. But there's nothing saying that he actually comes at the sixth seal. You've got to keep reading, not jump to conclusions. Verse 17, we'll jump down. Verse 17, well, we'll, we'll read verse 16. Verse 16, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fallen us and hide us from the presence of him, who sits on the throne and from the wrath. Hide us from the wrath of God. Now people say, well, they see God. Hide us from the face of God. Therefore, God is coming. But he's not actually coming at that moment. They might see him. The sky might roll back to where you can see into heaven, maybe. But he doesn't actually lift up his people from the earth at that moment doesn't say anything like that. And he doesn't actually land on the earth at that moment. doesn't say anything like that. So if you keep reading, you go into the seventh seal, which is seven trumpets. You read all seven trumpets, and then at the last trumpet of the seventh seal, finally, the people, the saints of God, are lifted up, both the dead and the living saints or lift it up to God. And then we go to heaven. We get married to God. We have a great feast. And then we come back down with him after that. At the end of that time. So to say that he comes back right here. Is just jumping to conclusions. Amen. But nevertheless we see what happens in the sixth seal. Is the heavenly signs foretold by Joel. Remember, Joel said that with the opening of the, of the, with the, with the heavenly signs, you would have the pouring out of the Holy Ghost. 
when we had the pouring out of the Holy Ghost in Acts, it was 3,000 people on that day. But then, all throughout Acts, people keep... So it didn't stop. It did not stop on the day of Pentecost because throughout the book of Acts, huge numbers of people were getting saved consistently all the time. More people, another thousand, another thousand, another hundred, another family, another family, another person, another person. Constantly. It did not stop on the day of Pentecost. It was only the beginning. Amen. So that's what we can expect as soon as this happens. And then if you go down to chapter 7, verse 1, Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners or quarters or wings of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, meaning from the north, the south, the west, and the east, the winds are restrained, so that no, one, no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun from the sunrise, from the east, having the seal of the living Theos. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our Theos on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed, from every tribe of the sons or the descendants of Jezreel. From the tribe of Judah, the Jews, only 12,000. Now we know that traditional false Christianity, Babylon, says 144,000 Jews were sealed. But the Bible says only 12,000 Jews will be sealed. And then another 12,000 Israelites from Reuben, another 12,000 Israelites from Asher, another 12,000 from Simon, another 12,000 from Zebulun, and another 12,000 from Levi, another 12,000 from Naphtali, another 12,000 from Gad, another 12,000 from Joseph, another 12,000 from Benjamin, until you get throughout these tribes. The tribe of Dan is not listed here. Some of the descendants of Dan will have to wait for salvation until after the sealing. Nevertheless, there will be some people from Dan be saved at a later time during the tribulation. But they have to wait for salvation according to Genesis 49. That is a prophecy that Dan would have to wait for salvation. So that's why Dan is not listed. Now, when we get to Joseph, that would include, um, I believe, is Manasseh not listed, or is Manasseh listed? Manasseh is listed above, Ephraim's not listed. Where's Manasseh listed? Uh, verse 6. Verse 6. So I'm going to underline Manasseh so I can find it easier next time. Now, the Manasseh is the United States, the Americans. Um, and then Joseph then, Joseph normally would be both Manasseh and Ephraim combined. But sometimes if you see it listed separately, Manasseh listed separately, then the conclusion 
logic, common sense, would be that Joseph, in this case, is talking about Ephraim because Manasseh is listed separately. Usually, Joseph would be Manasseh and Ephraim both. So Manasseh, Americans, would be 12,000 sealed. And then Ephraim, where it says Joseph, you could put Ephraim in parentheses, talking about the British Commonwealth. That could include South Africa and India, Canada and the UK, and other nations, including Australia. 12,000 scattered among that British Commonwealth. And 12,000 Jews, uh, and so forth. Now, uh, we do have at the end of the New Testament a list of the 12 tribes and who they probably are. So, Robert, if you could make a note, please. Beside each one of these, I'm going to add their identities here in this chapter. We have an outline at the end of the New Testament, but I'm going to add here in parentheses next to each one of these tribes what, what nationality that they represent. Then we go down to verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, that's in addition to the 144,000 from every nation that would include Gentiles, not just Israelites, and every tribe and every people and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, which is a symbol for worship. Verse 10, And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our Theos, our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb of God. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped the Theos, saying, Amen. Uh, illogical, illogical, uh, let me try to work this out for a second. Eulogy. Eulogia. Eulogia and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our Theos forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord or Sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. It doesn't say these are those that, that escaped the tribulation before it happened. No, but rather they came out of, meaning they endured it and then came from that time of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These robes are not literal. They are symbolic for righteousness, repentance, salvation. And they have been worshipped through the blood of Jesus. They got saved in the tribulation. Verse 15, For this reason they are before the throne of the Theos, and they serve him day and night 
in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, referring to Psalm 23, and the Theos will wipe every tear from their eyes. What about the temple here? It says that they will serve him day and night in his temple. So does that mean there will be a temple on earth during the tribulation or in the millennium? No, absolutely not. Because if you look at the context about that he will wipe away their tears and will give them the springs of the water of life and there will be no longer hunger nor the heat of the sun or any of such of these things, that's referring to later on in Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. So what you're seeing here is a projection of time, seeing those saints who got saved during the tribulation, you're seeing them in paradise. You're actually seeing them in paradise of enjoying eternal life, enjoying a time frame in the future, way beyond that time, way beyond the tribulation, a time in the future in the new heavens and the new earth in paradise when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more hunger. And it says in Revelation 20 or 21 that he will be our temple, that his presence will be our temple. It says that. And therefore, because of his light, his glory will have no need of the sun or the moon, meaning there'll be no more counting of days. There'll be no more seventh day. There'll be no more holy days. Every day will be the same. There'll be no more time. Time will not exist in eternity because we won't have to go by the sun and the moon anymore. So, it's not talking about a physical temple. It's talking about the very presence of God. The point here is, at the sixth seal, there is going to be 144,000 virgin males of the descendants of Israel that will become preachers. And the reason I know that they become preachers is the fruit of their sealing. They're sealed first. And then after that, we see the consequences of that. We see a fruit, a result of their sealing. We know that we know that God called the Israelites to be ministers to the Gentiles. And that salvation was to the Israelites first, which it says Jews, but should say Israelites, to the Israelites first and then to the Gentiles. And that is the way God works. And you can call it unfair or just or prejudice or discriminatory all you want to, but that would be blasphemous talk because God is God and he has every right to choose to do it his way. Amen. 
But these Israelites will evangelize to the world, resulting in salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles, is what I mean, to the Gentiles. Amen. As well as more salvation to the Jews and more salvation to all the Israelites as well. Amen. Now, the article at isawthelightministries.com slash dates dot html will provide you proof, undeniable proof, that if you take Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement, the Fiesta of Trumpets, within the time span of the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation and the 30 days before, of fleeing and so forth and take it and align the calendar on what the Bible says will be a certain number of days between each end time event Daniel 12 mentions uh, 1290 days and 1335 days Revelation 11 mentions 1260 days so forth and so forth. So when you align those scriptures and other scriptures speaking about a certain number of days with the calendar, then you come out to the strong delusion, the abomination of desolation occurring on the day of Purim of some year. 30 days later, you have on the day of First day of unleavened bread, the day after Passover, the day Jesus died, will be the invasion of Israel. World War III, the Gog Magog War, the start of the 1260 days of the Great Tribulation. And then you keep counting eventually, we'll have to count to Pentecost as well. It will be the third Pentecost of the Great Tribulation. So you have the first Pentecost within that first year. Actually, you're going to have 50 days from Passover or 50 days from that week of Passover, from that, from that week of the invasion, the week that the invasion occurs. 50 days from that seventh day and then that would be your first Passover, I mean, first Pentecost during the tribulation. Then you come to the next year, that would be your second Pentecost. And then you come to the next year, that would be your third Pentecost. And when you get to the third Pentecost of the great tribulation, then, which is not three, four years, not three, four years yet, but nevertheless, the third Pentecost during the tribulation, you will have the opening of the sixth seal. Now, I've gone into that in much more detail before in a previous sermon, and it's in much more detail and with all the proof you could ever ask for in that article on isawthelightministries.com slash dates.html. You can also use the search box on the bottom of every page on the website and search for the words Five holy days in the end time prophetic timeline. You find it very easily like that. 
Chapter 7 here in Revelation teaches us that after the sixth seal, there will be another fulfillment of Pentecost of many souls saved. The 1335-day prophetic timeline countdown spoken of in Daniel 12 teaches us to start counting with the abomination of desolation. It says so in Daniel 12 until we get through all of these holy days in that three and a half years. We will see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy on each of these holy days. Now, on the MeWe social media groups that we have, I posted links last night to some apps that you can download and that I do recommend and encourage you to download on Android phones and Windows and Mac computers and into your browsers, probably even on Linux, that you can download these apps on your computer to see a countdown to Pentecost. And I do encourage everyone to download one or more of those apps to help you to more often see the countdown to this year's Pentecost. That every day, all you have to do is look up on the window of your computer and see the number instantly. Now I realize that you can mark it on your physical calendar on the wall, which I hope that every one of you has a physical paper calendar, either on your desk or on your wall or both. And I encourage you to count the days like that as well. Having a physical paper calendar in your possession somewhere is good old school technique of keeping up with what day it is, uh, your appointments, other things. Because you never, ever know when your computer could crash. And yes, you might fix it, but you also might not fix it as well. So it's good to have an old school technique of writing things down on paper. And I really believe in old school ways because old school ways are not as lazy and uses your brain more. Using the computer for every little thing is dumbing down society. You don't have to think as much. You don't have to write as much. And people's writing skills are suffering because of that. Thinking skills are suffering because of that. And so forth. So I really believe in getting back to the old school ways. Nevertheless, because we are all on computers and most of us are on smartphones or dumb phones as well. I think it's also very edifying to put a countdown on your phone, on your computer, to where more often it will come flashing in front of your eyes. We've got 14 days left to Pentecost. We've got 13 days left to Pentecost. We've got 12 days left to Pentecost. The more you see it, the more is going to come into your mind. The more you're going to be reminded to count the days. The more you're going to be reminded to prepare for Pentecost. The more you're going to be observing what the Bible tells us to do to be counting the days. The world, Babylon, evil people and deceived people, they're counting the days to Christmas and to birthdays and to all kinds of carnal things. 
the people of God should be counting the days to Pentecost. Amen. Now, after we see the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation on the day of Purim of some year, we will begin the countdown to Passover next, 30 days later, the unleavened bread, the invasion, the start of the great tribulation, and then to the third Pentecost during tribulation, after which we will also see the opening of the sixth seal. And then we will continue to count to the opening of the seventh seal, a year, no, just a month or two later, and the start of the seven trumpets on the fiesta of trumpets of that same year. And then we'll even continue to count to the Day of Atonement of the following year when the saints will be called up for the first resurrection. Let us count to Pentecost every year, but also let us count to the Pentecost of the year before Jesus returns. Because that is going to be a tremendous, wonderful, great moment in history. A time when there will be a great increase of salvation upon the earth. Our families and our friends and our co-workers. Many people that we have witnessed to will finally come to accept Jesus Christ and his truth. We'll start the countdown when the strong delusion occurs in Purim of some possible year, perhaps next year. As we celebrate Pentecost this year and every year, let us keep in our mind the hope and the faith that such a great time of Pentecost is coming. Let us think about that. Let us reflect upon that in these next two weeks and on Pentecost Day. Every year at Pentecost time, let us reflect upon there is a great Pentecost coming. A great Pentecost coming. Let us be encouraged by this. Instead of keeping our minds constantly on death and destruction, our problems and worries, let us also put our mind on God's promises. He said, wait for the promise. Amen. Let us put our minds on the finish line and the future. God is good to us. This is a very special revelation that is available to everyone who would study the Bible and seek. Yet, it is also chosen for us in this specific worldwide congregation to understand right now and let us share this and tell others about it. We should rejoice that we have received this revelation and have embraced it. We should rejoice that God, Jesus, opened up our understanding to this great revelation. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Let us prepare special food for this Pentecost and every Pentecost. And I encourage the use of balloons, decorations, candles, and even family and friends if you can find someone to agree to celebrate with you on Pentecost. It's not just for the baptized. Pentecost should be embraced by all Christians. Now, one more thing, and this is significant. It is also possible 
that the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai during the time of Pentecost. That is what Jewish teachings and the Jewish legend says, is that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at the time of Pentecost. Let's think this out in the Bible to see if this could be true. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea on the first day of unleavened bread. They would thereafter eventually soon cross over into what is now known as Saudi Arabia and on to Mount Sinai within those next 40 to 50 days. Moses was on Mount Sinai in that type of time frame. So yes, it is possible and very likely. Also realize that Moses was on Mount Sinai how many days? 40 days. And Jesus also walked on earth 40 days after he rose from the dead. Three days and three nights after he died on the first day of unleavened bread. So I do believe that it's very possible that Pentecost occurred at some day, whether it was the first day or the last day that Moses was on the mountain, I do believe that Pentecost was involved at that time frame. Understanding this then, considering that the Ten Commandments was given at the season of Pentecost, salvation in the end time Pentecost cannot come until people accept the Ten Commandments and also the holy days and tithes and baptism because it was more than just the Ten Commandments that was given during that Pentecost season at Mount Sinai. Of course, the animal sacrifices, the, the unclean meats, the circumcision, those physical ritual things, ceremonial law, ceremonial physical things, like unclean meats and cutting off the foreskin, those things are done away with by the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Amen. He was cut for us. Amen. Nevertheless, the spiritual things, the celebration of God's holy days, the keeping of his Ten Commandments, being baptized, converted, and sealed through the Holy Ghost, and even the giving of tithes through the principle of helping the poor, helping the ministry, helping the kingdom, helping the ministers themselves as well, that is a principle of love which goes right along with the Ten Commandments. Salvation cannot come to a huge number of people on the earth until they embrace Jesus and his commandments. Amen. Therefore, there are direct connections between the law of God and the future fulfillment of Pentecost. Matthew 24 verse 14 says, Let's see if I can get it as close as I can get it through remembrance of that verse. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto the world, unto something like to every nation, and then shall the end come. 
as a witness to it, each nation, every nation, and then shall the end come. The nations must be taught the Ten Commandments. They must be taught the holy days, the baptism, the seventh day. What day is the seventh day? Tiding in order to help the gospel reach more people. To show who is your God, who are you paying your taxes to in God's government. Showing that he is your king. Principles like this must be taught to every nation on earth. And then shall the end come. There's a connection between knowledge of the law, teaching of the law. Why else would he choose the Israelites to be the 144,000 evangelists to go forth to teach a great unnumberable multitude to even the Gentile nations who do not know his law, nor even his name. Amen. His name must be connected with it as well. You can't be saved without knowing his name. Amen. Brother Robert is currently working on a Spanish translation of the entire website. And that should be done pretty soon, relatively soon. So that would be very exciting because the Spanish translation of the website will reach a lot of people, not only inside the United States and Mexico, but also Spain, Latin America, Central America, down into South America. Many millions of people that speak Spanish in South America. South America has been on my heart for many years. I believe that South America is very much under-evangelized. Pretty much it's only Islam and the Catholic Church and tribal jungle beliefs, religious systems. You don't really have a lot of Pentecostals or Baptists or Seventh-day Adventists or other groups. You might have some. But by far, it is under-evangelized. The true gospel must go out into the Spanish language. I know that there's a lot of Portuguese language as well in South America, but we have to start somewhere. And Spanish is a very good start. When you look at the entire world, there are many, many, many more people who speak Spanish than Portuguese. So it is it's wise to start with Spanish. Spanish is among the top three languages, maybe even the top two, I forget, but definitely among, among the top three languages upon the entire earth. So this is a huge window of opportunity. And I ask for every person to please pray for the translation and for the fruit, the result of the translation. Now, it'll have to be perfected over time. It's not going to be a perfect translation. But it will be better than what we have right now with uh, nothing available on Spanish, or very little, very little rather, actually very little. We do have a few flyers in Spanish. Uh, thankful to Brittany for that, that she did a Spanish translation, a few, a few of the flyers a few years back. But it'll be good to get the entire website done. And, of course, we do hope for uh, other translations. The Portuguese, the Chinese, the Russian. I would like to see more 
in the Korean language, and of course, uh, more African languages as well. Now, of course, there is a Google Translate button on the website, on every page on the website, where anybody of many different languages can hit that button and translate the website into their language. But the problem with that is that Google does not translate perfectly. And that's dangerous when you're dealing with scripture because Google could accidentally translate something and completely change the doctrine. And somebody might actually embrace false doctrine by using Google Translate. So I make it available so that they could possibly learn the truth, but I also realize the danger in it. So Brother Robert is using Google Translate as a starting point, but then he is also going through it with his knowledge of Spanish, which is not perfect, but is useful, a definitely useful skill that he can go one page at a time through the most important articles. I gave him a list, I gave him a list of the most important articles to go through and fix anything that Google did wrong. But we're still going to need eventually a person that is completely 100% as a native language who knows it really excellent to fix any necessary things that might skip his attention. And we're going to have to do the same thing with each language, one language at a time. So I pray or ask, I mean, I ask for everybody's prayers for the Spanish translation and the fruit of it, and then also for other translations. Another thing about getting it translated and then reviewed and corrected by somebody that knows a foreign language, regardless of what language it is, is that then we can even possibly uh, distribute flyers in print or even distribute books in print for people that don't have the Internet. So we have to consider that possibility as well. Uh, yes, they could use a Google Translate. But the Google Translate will not be perfect and could cause a false doctrine and a misunderstanding. And that is dangerous. So that's why it's important that we have people who have foreign language skills. It's a free conference call ended. I don't know why. But at least the sermon is about done. So we need people of foreign language skills to fix the Google Translate in many different languages so that we can get it not only on the Internet, but even in printed flyers. That's perfect printed flyers to where if a person sees it out in the local community, a flyer that they won't get, get confused by the wrong translation. Google cannot translate correctly, just cannot do it. Technology is not that perfect yet in that arena. Amen. Everybody, please pray for this. Pray for the free conference call as well. I don't know why it disconnected right there. 
Um, and it says you're not connected either. Can you check your phone, please, Robert? Uh, and don't forget about the last Sunday of this month, May 31st, for that. And if it's disconnected, can you... Ain't no use trying to call back in. I'm going to end it right here. But we'll have to try to figure that out. Pray about that as well, everybody. Pray for everyone. Pray for my wife, please. Pray harder. She needs help really bad. And pray for me. And uh, pray for Brother Robert. He needs your prayer desperately as well. Because being here with me is a lot to take. <laughs> he needs your prayers to deal with me. So pray for him. Hey, it is beautiful outside. The sun is shining. It is warm. And that is my kind of weather. Uh-huh. I like the kind of weather where you can get out there and get a sunburn. Praise the Lord. Shine on me. Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening, everyone. And if you're new, if you're new, please check out the ministry website at isawthelightministries.com. And if you did listen on the new, uh, the new outlet, the free conference call, let us know how it sounded. And uh, your opinion of the free conference call as well, if you was listening over there on that channel. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good seventh day. What's left of it? Rest well and worship well. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.